Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome again. If I don't know you, uh, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here, and it's my pleasure to get to open up God's Word uh, and preach to you from it today. We're going to be continuing on in 2 Corinthians, so if you would please go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, and as you turn there, this week's sermon, and I guess all of them really are, but this week's sermon is a continuation of last week's. And, and, and by the way, if you missed it, you should go back and listen. Uh, our, our youth pastor, James Schultz, preached, and it was great. He crushed it. And this is just sort of a helpful hint here. If you have a student, middle school or high school student, that's not actively involved in our youth group, honestly, I'll say it, you're wrong. Like, like you might be in sin. <laughs> There's more positive momentum around our youth ministry than almost any area of our church, and I actually think that that's saying something. Uh, we've got two amazing youth pastors, Cole sitting right up here. We've got a, a youth pastor, James, that preached a sermon to adults last week that was probably better than almost every other sermon preached in Houston last week. I'm not kidding. We, we've got godly, faithful volunteer leaders like the best of the best here at GBC, and it's oriented, the entire ministry is oriented around making disciples, just like the rest of the church. It's built around walking alongside your kids as you disciple them. Like, what activity or hobby or other thing could be better for your kid? Like, like what could be more important? Anyway, rant over. Uh, last week, James preached on what faithful ministry looked like. And he said, actually really Paul said, that faithful ministry is centered around, it's focused on a message of reconciliation. The idea that, that God, through his son Jesus, makes his enemies his friends, that he reconciles us to himself. And, and Paul is going to pick up on that idea, this idea of reconciliation in our passage today. And, and really, he, he's going to start in the same place, speaking of our need to be reconciled to God. But really, and, and the main idea here, you'll see this as we go, the main idea is that he, Paul, wants to be reconciled to the Corinthians. To, to these people that he knows and he loves, to these people, at least some of them, that have been poisoned against him by false teachers. Okay, so, so, so that's the backdrop. Let's start by reading verses 1 and 2. Again, we're in first, uh, sorry, so 2 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 1. Paul writes, he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Okay, the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul claims, look back at the beginning of verse one, he claims to be working together with him. Okay, now, who is him? Who is Paul working with? It's God, right? It's God. And it, this is a pretty bold statement. Paul's saying, you know the God of the universe? 
the creator of the heavens and the earth. Yeah, I work with him. I'm with him. And the implication, what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen to me. Pay attention. He says, I'm making an appeal to you, and I'm making it because this is really God's appeal to you. So what's the appeal? It's the back half of verse 1. Look at it. Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Now, what's that mean? To, to receive the grace of God in vain. Well, to start that word vain, it, it means empty, worthless, ineffective. And so Paul could be saying one of two things, or, or maybe he's saying both. First, he could be concerned that some of the Corinthians in the church, some of them aren't really saved. As in, they've heard the gospel, they know the grace of God, but they don't believe. Or second, it could be that they're saved, they believe in the gospel, but they're not growing. Again, they, they believe in Paul's message, it's just not having its intended impact in their life. So two options. It could be either one. It could be both. Regardless, in both cases, the grace of God would be received in vain. It would be empty, worthless, ineffective. And so Paul's pleading with them. He's saying, don't turn away from the grace of God. Don't turn away from this message of reconciliation, this message that I, Paul, have so faithfully preached to you. Don't let it all be in vain. And Paul's appeal, it's strong, right? Backed by God. But it's also personal. It's pastoral. Paul is fearful that the Corinthians' current attitude, their their, their current conduct, the the trajectory that they're on, he's, he's fearful that it shows that they're being lured away, not just from the gospel, but from him, their pastor, from the truth that he had been teaching them. And that's why I think he borrows this quote from the book of Isaiah. Do y'all see that? Look at verse 2. It's probably like indented or italicized in your Bible. This is, like I said, it's a quotation from Isaiah who was an Old Testament prophet. And if you're not familiar, a prophet was somebody who spoke on behalf of God. They're, They're God's representative, God's voice to the people. And Paul quotes Isaiah here. He does this to intentionally call to mind his, Isaiah's, ministry. You see, God called Isaiah to speak to his people when they were in exile. And unfortunately, the people of Israel, God's people, they didn't listen to Isaiah. They didn't respond to his message, just like the Corinthians with Paul. And so Paul borrows from Isaiah, too. He's trying to point out to the Corinthians, he's saying, don't be like Israel. Listen to me. He's saying the favorable time, the the time of salvation, it's it's now. He says this twice at the end of of verse 2. He says, behold, the time is now. He says, now is the time to respond to God's grace. And for us, there's two equal dangers here. Okay, there's, there's two ways, really two groups of people who need to consider, who need to hear Paul's appeal. Okay, the first is directed at 
some of us here that haven't fully trusted in Jesus. Okay, yeah, you're here. You're, you're at church. Maybe even you're in a small group. Maybe even outwardly you've made a, a profession. You call yourself a Christian. But like some in the Corinthian church, you don't really believe. You haven't really committed to following Jesus, surrendered your life to God. Maybe you think, yeah, I'll do that when I settle down. I want a chance to be young, to, to sow my wild oats. I'll do that later. Or maybe you think, I kind of like doing my way, things my way for now. I can always try God's way later. Maybe a lot of you think, I'm building my career. I'm building my family. I'm having kids. I'll surrender to the Lord. I'll give it all to him later when I'm more established. Maybe even for more of you, it's intellectual. You think, I need to find the answers. I need to have my, my questions answered, uh, my doubts resolved. Then, after that, then I'll respond. Then I'll believe. And I get it. You're, you're probably not saying those things out loud. But if that's you, if that's how you think, even if it's just practically speaking how you're living, listen to Paul's words. He says, behold, now, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. So stop running. Stop hesitating. Stop making excuses. Stop justifying a, a lukewarm cultural Christianity. Put your faith in Jesus. Receive the grace of God. Don't wait. Because the harsh reality is this. Tomorrow, some later time, it may never come. There is no guarantee. So that's the first group. The second group of people who need to consider to, to listen to Paul's appeal, who need to be sure that they're not receiving the grace of God in vain, it's the rest of us. It's for me. It's for you. It's for the Christians in the room. You, you see, it's so easy to get stuck in a pattern of sin, Right? To think, oh, I'll work on this later, some other time. God's forgiven me, I know that. And so it's, it's no big deal if I keep doing this thing, keep thinking this way. I want you to think, what is that for you? What, what is that thing that you know is sin in your life, the thing you feel conviction over, the thing you know you need to change, but you're just sort of putting it off, saving it for later. Whatever's in your mind right now, Paul would say to you, behold, the time is now. The time of repentance, of salvation is now. Stop putting it off. And it might not even be a sin issue. It might be that God is calling you to a step of obedience to serve in the church, to, to give, to, to sacrifice financially, to disciple that younger guy at work, that, that, that new mom in the group you just finished, to evangelize, to pursue a friend, a neighbor, a coworker with the gospel. It might be that God has something for you. You feel it, you acknowledge it, but you think, later. I'll do that later. 
when I'm less busy, when I have more time, when God opens the door, when he makes it obvious. Listen, if that's you, again, Paul would say, behold, the time is now. The time is now. So, Paul is making this appeal to the Corinthians, to us. He's saying, I'm working with God. I speak for him. I'm I'm carrying his message, this message of reconciliation, of grace. He says, respond now. Don't wait. And again, like I said earlier, this is not just Paul as like a, a preacher, as a famous teacher, like someone with a lot of followers on Twitter, like a Christian influencer, someone distant, detached. No, this is personal. He loves these people. And he doesn't want anything to hold them back, to deter them from responding to him, to his message. And that's exactly where he's going to go next. Look with me at verses 3 through 10. And remember, I said earlier that his appeal is going to start to narrow towards, to move towards his reconciling with the Corinthians. Listen for that. Look at verse 3. Again, I'm going to read through verse 10. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Okay, like I said, Paul wants nothing to hold the Corinthians back from responding to him. And by the way, this is not limited to his appeal here in chapter 6. He's referring to his entire ministry. Look back at verse 3. He says, we want no obstacles, no obstructions. We want nothing to discredit or dishonor or disgrace our ministry. And then as we read, as you heard, he gets into commending himself. And in some sense, you need to know, this is the reason why he wrote this letter. Not just chapter 6, this is the whole thing. All of 2 Corinthians, he's writing to defend himself. But not to save his ego or, or his reputation. Instead, he writes to save, to preserve his ministry to the Corinthians. He does it so that he's not supplanted, replaced by false teachers, these imposters that have infiltrated the church that he planted. And so, even though he doesn't say it, he goes on and on and on and on about himself and his ministry, and he does it, why? To juxtapose, to compare his ministry with the false teachers in Corinth. What he's doing rhetorically is he's basically asking How do you know that you can believe me over them? How do you know that I'm trustworthy? And he answers with phrase after phrase of reasons, of evidence, of confirmation. He he gives them what amounts to three little groupings, three sections that support and affirm 
the authenticity, the legitimacy of his ministry to them, of his message, the message of reconciliation. Okay, the first, group, first grouping, it comes in verses four and five. Okay, Paul lists out here nine different ways he's suffered, nine different hardships that he's faced. And this isn't like being made fun of at work or, or not getting to sit at the cool kids' table. Paul's talking about being beaten and imprisoned and starved and exhausted. And he heads this list up. This comes halfway through verse 4. He gives a capstone for this list with the phrase, great endurance. Great endurance. Paul's saying, how do you know that I'm the real deal? Why else would I endure all of these things? He says, who in their right mind would go through all of this for nothing? And then in the next set, this next grouping, this comes in verses 6 and 7. He shows that in response to the afflictions and hardships and calamities he faced, he didn't grow embittered or, or frustrated or resentful or angry. No, he says, by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, we've been pure and patient and kind and loving and true. He's saying, I've been faithful and godly and upright in the midst of the toughest of circumstances, amidst the worst circumstances. And you hear all of that. We read these first two lists and you think, someone who's led such a noble life, a life that I think we'd all agree is worthy of commendation, I mean, surely, surely this guy is well thought of. Surely, at least in terms of ministry, he has it all. Wide reach, general acceptance, respect, admiration. But then you get to the third list. And it's a list of paradoxes. This is in verses 8 through 10. And you see that even with the integrity that Paul has shown amidst hardship, despite the purity that has marked his ministry, Paul says, I'm still maligned. I'm still mistreated. And above all, he says, I'm still misunderstood. And this list here in verses 8 through 10, these paradoxes, it likely contains some of the things that the false teachers are saying about him, some of the things they're whispering behind closed doors to the Corinthians. Oh, that Paul, he's disgraceful, pathetic. He's an imposter, a fake. He's weak, shallow, destitute. He's a nobody. And Paul says, no, no, no. The exact opposite is true with each one of those things. You see, despite things seeming bleak on the surface, despite the outward appearance being bleak, Paul was actually able to see things rightly, to see things the way that God saw them. He had the perspective to know that he had in God everything he needed, that his identity, his purpose, his ministry was secure. And so putting it all together here, Paul is showing, he's demonstrating his trustworthiness. He's showing that he's worthy of commendation. And how does he do that? Does he point to his education? His, his theological training? No. Does he talk about his giftedness? How, how great he is at uh, apologetics or, or evangelism or teaching? No. Does he talk about his success or his fame or his status? No, no, no. And by the way, he could have. Those things would have all been true. They would have been totally within bounds. 
But instead, in the end, Paul says, my ministry is worthy of commendation. My ministry is worth following. My message is worth listening to because of three things. Perseverance, purity, and perspective. Do you see that? Perseverance, that was verses 4 and 5. Purity, that was verses 6 and 7. And perspective, that's verses 8 through 10. And I want you to remember, Paul has just said to the Corinthians, but also to us, this was last week, the end of chapter 5, he said, we are God's ambassadors, his representatives. We are God's prophets. We carry a message from God to the world, a message of reconciliation. And Paul's been saying, that message is important. That message is life and death. That message not only, though, demands a response immediately now, as Paul said in verse 2, but also that message, that message demands that our lives, our ministries be marked by perseverance, by purity, by perspective. And just to talk real briefly about what each one of those things might look like in our lives, with perseverance, this demands that we navigate hardship, big and small, in a way that looks different than the world, okay, with with joy and hope. And just to be clear, this is not only referring to, like, circumstantial hardship, like things that come inevitably in life. No, these are also, and probably, primarily, hardships that come as a result of ministry, hardships that come as a byproduct of risks taken to share the gospel, to live distinctively Christian in the world. Are you taking those risks? Risks to your finances, to to your your reputation, to your comfort, to your five-year plan? If you're not, you're missing an opportunity to persevere. You'll miss an opportunity to authenticate the message of the gospel, this message of reconciliation to the people around you with purity. I think it's so interesting. So many of us think of our personal holiness, devotion to God. Uh, We think of spiritual discipline as like a a defensive act, something that builds a wall around us, protects us from, from evil and from sin. But here... Paul very much sees his personal holiness as offensive. He sees it as a weapon, right? He actually uses that word in verse 7. He says, they're weapons in my left and right hand, my personal holiness. So I want to ask you, are you living purely? Are you living a godly life when, when no one sees you, when there's no one to impress? Are you pleasing God? Paul says that's one of the best ways, that's one of the best ways to get people to take your discipleship, your evangelism seriously. In fact, what he's saying here is you have to have that to do those things. Last, with perspective, I want you to see Paul says he seeks to remove all obstacles. Anything that might keep someone from responding to God's message to his ministry, he says I want to remove all of those things. But at the same time, He recognizes that the message of the gospel is offensive. He recognizes that there are going to be extreme responses to the gospel. Acceptance on one hand, but rejection on the other. Love and hate. And so, as we endeavor to be God's ambassadors, 
As we endeavor to share this message with the world, we need to realize we will face some of these same things. We'll be dishonored and slandered and misunderstood. And despite that, we have to, like Paul, persevere without compromise. Like Paul, we have to have perspective. Perspective, recognizing that the world, even parts of the Christian subculture, is looking to live their best life now. And we have to remember, though, that the Bible tells us, in fact, it promises us that our best life as Christians, it's coming later. And so we live with perspective now knowing that. Okay, dialing back a bit. Paul's issued an impassioned appeal to the Corinthians, to us, to receive the grace of God. And then he goes out of his way to affirm or authenticate this message, to commend this message of reconciliation by showing that he's lived a life that's worthy of this message. So given all of those things, what was holding the Corinthians back from responding? Why is Paul having to go through all of this just to convince them? Look at verses 11 through 13. Paul says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. Okay, in the end, Paul is saying, I've not only removed every obstacle, I've gone even further. I've given you my whole heart. I've spoken to you freely. He says, I've given you everything. And the implication of him speaking to them as children, that's from verse 13, is that Paul is speaking as a father, as one who loves his children. And yet this is the back half of verse 12. He says, you are restricted in your own affections. Essentially, he's saying, you have rejected me. We don't know exactly what was going on, what happened, the exact reason the Corinthians were responding to Paul this way. Like I've been saying, it's clear that there are people in the Corinthian church who are, who are bad influences, who are trying to, to discredit or question Paul. But despite that, Paul doesn't speak of his opponents here, does he? No, he looks the Corinthians square in the eye, and he says, you, you are restricted in your own affections. And oh man, if you think about that, it's a dagger. I know I've hammered this, but these are people who would have been close to Paul. People he shared the gospel with. People he brought out of paganism. People he discipled and taught. People he watched grow and mature. Like, if you've ever experienced this feeling in ministry, or as a parent, or as a friend, this is devastating. You open yourself up, you, you give everything just to be rejected. It's horrible. And I know, as we've looked at this passage, we've mostly been talking about what our ministry should look like, how we should model ourselves after Paul. But I want to end with this. I want you to think, I want you to consider is there any part of your life, any relationship that you have that you are in the place of the Corinthians, where you are the Corinthians? Meaning, is there someone who's opened themselves up to you? Someone who's 
sacrificed or, or given freely to you, someone who's invested in you or, or tried to invest in you, and you've responded by withholding, by, by restricting your affections. And I'm not talking generally here. I'm specifically referring to a ministry context. So I want you to think, as a growth or community group leader or someone else in your group, even just a fellow Christian, or a parent, or a grown child, or a counselor, a mentor, or a teacher, a close friend? Have they made an effort towards you? Maybe calling you out in your sin, calling you to growth and maturity in a particular area, and you've responded with rejection by restricting your affections. Have you closed yourself off from them, cut them off? And given the context Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, a pastor to his congregation, I can't not say this. Maybe it's a pastor from your old church. Of course, from your old church. (laughs) Definitely no one here. No, but really, more than likely, West or me or someone else on staff, have you restricted your affection for one of us And look, we get it. It sort of comes with the territory here. It's it's an occupational hazard. When you get behind this pulpit, when when you come into our office, we're going to say some things that you don't like, some things that might make you uncomfortable. We're going to challenge you in ways that you don't want to be challenged. We're going to call you to things you don't want to be called to. And I'm not saying that we're infallible. Trust me, I am painfully aware of my own inadequacies. And I promise you, if Wes were here, he would say the same exact thing. But I promise you, I promise you, we do everything we can, even in the midst of the many mistakes that we make, we do everything we can, we say everything we say to open ourselves to you, to share freely with you. We love you. We, we, we care for you. We want so badly for the grace of God to not be in vain in your life. That's why we do this job. That's why we answered this call. And so maybe you've been restricted in your affections towards one of our pastors or elders, one of the people on our staff. They've opened themselves up to you, but you rejected them. What I'd ask, whether it's towards someone at GBC or someone else somewhere else, no matter who it is, What I'd ask is exactly what Paul asks here in verse 13. Please, widen your hearts also. Open yourself. Come talk to us. Go give that leader, that friend, that parent a call. Sure, there's probably some pain. I get that. Sure, they probably didn't do everything right, say everything they could have said. But in the end, how can we, you and me, how can we carry a message of reconciliation to the world? How can we have a ministry centered around reconciliation? How can we be ambassadors of a God who reconciles sinners to himself if we are not reconciled to each other? So I want you to think and pray about that. And consider widening your heart. Like Paul says, behold, the time is now. Let me pray.
Father, I am so thankful that you have chosen to give us, Lord, this message of reconciliation. Lord, I'm thankful that you didn't stop just at saving us, Lord, but that you have chosen to include us in what you're doing in the world. Lord, I'm thankful for the way that that gives us life and purpose and security and identity. And I pray, Lord, for myself and for each one of us here, Lord, that we would be faithful to that call, Lord, that we would bring this message of reconciliation to the people in our lives. And Lord, I I pray that as we're faithful to do that, uh, Lord, we would also be reconciled to one another. another. Lord, I I pray that you would enable us to live in unity as brothers and sisters. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.